you know, if I have a physical disability, is there anybody out there making music with physical disability? Look and read up on their lives, maybe. Um, but but test the waters yourself. Yeah. You know, test the waters. Push people and find out and be satisfied yourself. Hello and welcome to Unseen, Unheard, the podcast where we discuss the black disabled experience in the UK's music industry. My name's Joy Addo and I'll be your host. Today I'm joined by a very special guest. He's a very talented musician and we have very similar surnames. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Clarence Addy. Thank you. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me. Um, Clarence, please answer this question as honestly as you can, okay. because I genuinely do care. <laughs> How are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good. I thought I'd be a lot tired, but I, I had a, a little rest on the train and a fresh walk up from the station, well, in my wheelchair. Mm -hmm. But so um, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, because you've come from Newcastle, haven't you? Newcastle upon Tyne, yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. long way. But it's a good, good journey. Yeah. Well, thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, you know that this podcast has come off the back of the Unseen Unheard report that Black Lives and Music and Attitude Is Everything has put out because we wanted to speak to people about their lived experiences being mm -hmm. in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, now, I mentioned there at the beginning that you are a musician, but for anybody listening or watching this who may not know who you are or what you do, can you tell us about your career so far? How did you get into music why did you get into music and what you're doing now okay well there's a few few questions there yeah. basically Sorry, that's a few questions rolled into one no that's right no no i got my brain waking up <laughs> um basically um half of my uh life i spent as a professional trumpet player and the other half has been as a disabled musician playing an electronic assisted instrument. Um, so I was born in this country. My parents were from um, Ghana, um, West Africa, and uh, my father and mother were over in this country for 10 years. My father wanted to better his knowledge on agricultural engineering. And during that time, uh, a brother, myself, and a brother and two sisters were born um, in London, um, and we, when it was time to go back to Ghana um, uh, as young children, there was a military coup going on. Um, and my father went ahead and he said, don't come back to Ghana at the moment because you'll never get back to England. Having a British passport would be good for your our schooling. So we stayed in England for um, a short uh, while um, and of course uh, when the military coup uh, was finally over we were so uh, accustomed to uh, English living mm -hmm. that it felt very strange to us to be told um, come on you can go home now to a place where we've never been yeah. um, but we grew up with foster parents they were uh, English and they took us to church from a very early age in the church which was the Salvation Army they had like uh, a brass band and a choir and they were very much into music. 
they uh, they had a junior band and a junior uh, singing group. And so from the age of six, somebody put a cornet, like a trumpet, in my hand mm -hmm. and started to teach me how to blow this thing. So um, that that was great fun. It was all, you know, uh, uh, I'm playing in church every, every day from uh, a young age. Mm -hmm. um, I then... Um, went to school and was interested in the trumpet. I didn't play much in our school orchestra. There was only about five of them, and they didn't sell very good, and I didn't think it was going to be good for my street cred to, <laughs> to, to play with them. But I practised, actually, uh, on my own and with friends, and eventually applied to the Royal College of Music in London. I went there and studied for four and a half, five years, mm -hmm. um, and... Um, uh, they're based mainly with classical music. I wanted to play music so much. I wanted to play every day, all, all the time. So I went out and played with pop groups and uh, theatre places mm -hmm. uh, um, and classical orchestras, uh, reggae bands, you know. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the experience of learning those. Um, and then leaving music college, I became a professional trumpet player. Used to freelance playing around on the BBC and maybe um, all sorts of uh, radio things and traveling um, around the world. So things were, were great and going uh, very well for myself. And, and then um, I had a terrible car accident, yeah. which meant that the, um, the car ended up rolling over uh, on the A1, halfway down the A1 between Newcastle and um, London. The car rolled over. Um, and it was, we still don't know what, where the fault was. But as the car rolled over, it broke my neck in the fourth vertebrae down. Mm. Um, and um, that damaged the spinal cord. Um, so much so that communication uh, couldn't happen from the spinal cord to uh, my, the rest of my body. So that has left me paralyzed from the neck downwards. Right. So just very briefly... After that, you know, I spent a year in hospital, and then when I came out, I was very interested still to do music, if it was possible, mm -hmm. um, and um, somebody built me an instrument, which we call Headspace. What I have to do is wear a headset, and I move my head around. That's the only control I have. Yeah. That's the way I drive my chin control wheelchair, mm -hmm. um, and um, it moves a mouse around the screen, and with specially written software, I can play music again in some different little groups, ensembles and orchestras, in fact. Right. And um, that's that's so interesting. And that um, accident happened in 1995, right? Yes, that's right. So uh, that was the year after I was born, actually. Oh, okay. Um, I so you said you spent a year in hospital. Yes. And I just want to ask you, so how... How long was it in between the time where you had the accident, spent the year in hospital, and then kind of, I, I don't know, rediscovered your love of music again? I mean, not that you lost it, but yeah. what, what was that adjustment period like? Well, I mean, the first problem was is that I had to go home uh, after a year and pull together a group of people, carers, to help me 24-7 yeah. to live and feed me, wash me, dress me, do everything. Yeah. Um, so that took a bit of an adjustment. Yeah. In my mind, I never really believed I wasn't going to play music. I thought I thought somehow, but I had no idea mm -hmm. how this was going to be possible. So about, uh, about 
two, two or so years after the accident, uh, this gentleman emerged. He emerged called Rolf Gelhar, and he was approached. He didn't know me. Um, people were talking about um, a gentleman who had this musician who had this uh, accident, um, and he um, contacted me um, and wondered if he could do anything for me. He he's a man who uh, he was a man. He just passed uh, passed away. I'm afraid about two years ago, wow. but um, um, he he um, was a great came from this family where the last couple of generations um, worked for NASA. Uh, in America, so they got these amazing brains. He was the only one that decided to go into music. Um, he was considered the black sheep of the family at the time. Um, but he was a very successful musician, building music sculptures, and used to work with the um, Carl Stockhausen, who was around, um, you know, in the early, early 1900s, create, introducing electronics to music. So he came from that background. He came and spent the weekend with me, said, what movement do you have, Clarence? I said, well, very little. I could just move my head or my nose one inch either side. Um, and so that, that's all I have. So we concentrated on building this um, headset. So altogether, it's probably about um, two and a half years. And so learning something like this instrument was a big thing. I had to spend ages and ages and ages um, trying to play it and concentrate. Mm -hmm. At first, I thought I could play all the flashy trumpet pieces I used to be able to play mm -hmm. and then I realized I couldn't on this instrument and so for a couple of weeks I gave myself a hard time thinking that I was useless and you know not very good at many things but then I realized that you know all the different instruments in the orchestra play different things you know you can't get a trombone that plays like a violin and so my instrument was a new introduction for me and also into the world and when the people that I play music with now, um, I have to uh, maybe show them what it's capable of, what, what it could do. Yeah. And do you know, are there many other people that use this instrument as well? Is it, is it just... Well, that's a very interesting conversation because <laughs> it was the only one in the world. Okay. Um, and um, several years ago, with two other friends, we sort of thought that it would be great if there are other people in my situation young people especially, mm -hmm. um, who are told there's no way they could play anything. We designed um, an instrument that is a, a simple version to my instrument um, and uh, introduced it to special needs schools. And so now we've got this project together called Open Orchestra where we're in about over 55 schools who have a little orchestra going mm -hmm. and often in this group is um, this uh, electronic instrument we're working on it again um, to make another version and slowly uh, these young people are getting very adept to this instrument and um, wanting it to do more and more so we're still working to yeah, make okay. it even more sophisticated wow and you spoke there a little bit um, about how you felt kind of adjusting to using the um, electronic headspace. Yes. Um, how have the orchestras that you've been working with, how did they react to it? Has everyone been like welcoming and open or was there a bit of an adjustment period there as well? Um, I'm still banging on doors. <laughs> um, okay. um, but, but fortunately, you know, I had quite a few friends who knew me and... Um, Gave me a chance. So we started off with a, a quartet um, of, of people playing uh, uh, conventional instruments and I would join them with my electronic instrument and um, 
uh, and would play and slowly people got to hear mm -hmm. what this instrument could do. Every, every ensemble I play with, I probably play in about um, seven or eight different groups. And um, people are, every time in rehearsals we discover something, sometimes I say, oh, I could do this, or I could do this background sound, I could do this spacey sound, mm. or earthy sound. Um, but the thing is, a lot of these sounds are in orchestral scores now that we have in films. So when you can see these documentaries, in the background, there's a mixture of electronics and these old traditional instruments. Um, oh. So it's just pointing that out, really. Yeah. And I guess it's like, you know, something new that people haven't seen. So Yes, just, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's really interesting. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about how has it been being being a musician and being in a wheelchair, being a wheelchair user, how has that been in terms of accessing venues and things like that? Because I know that, you know, people talk about accessibility a lot, but mm. this is your, this is what you do. So how has it been for you? Um, we're nowhere near the area level that I would like to be at with. Um, buildings being accessible for a start. Yeah. Um, one of the places uh, that I know and sometimes play, uh, the um, manager of that hall said to me, if ever you're going to play in my hall, Clarence, give me two and a half weeks' notice so I can build a stage that you can get onto. So he's prepared to do that. Yeah. But um, also in the same venue, there wasn't an accessible toilet. Yeah. So... You know, it, 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 it's a problem, it's a problem. But as buildings are slowly improving, there are more and more better facilities. It's not just really for people with disabilities. Uh, older people need, um, you know, things to be made easier yeah. um, um, and spaces made, made more accessible. Um, and it's so frustrating when, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, I used to play with a friend of mine um, and he said to me, do you fancy coming back on tour with this new instrument that you've got, Clarence? And I said, I would, but it would be a, a massive job trying to check out whether I could get inside and have a safe time in these in venues. So mm. it's not good. Yeah. And this is the thing, I think a lot of the times as people with disabilities, we have to think about extra things that other people mm. don't. And so like, just like, oh, like coming on tour, like great, that sounds great. But these are my access requirements and mm. these are the things I have to think about, mm -hmm. um, which is why I guess it's so important that we kind of, we kind of raise awareness. But other than accessibility of venues, have mm. you had any other challenges being in the industry, being a black man, being being disabled, like, have you faced any like discrimination that you noticed, and and did you yeah did did you realise at the time? Well, I'm I'm in quite a unique situation. Whereas um, being in a wheelchair mm -hmm. is one thing, being black, and also what type of music uh, one likes to play. Yeah. Um, there, there, I, there's no obvious things that have happened to me for being black. It's uh, I have to. Um, educate people into it music-wise, that's the first thing. Um, I did go on a, a, a tour to uh, the Middle East, and we uh, were in, uh, when we flew to Qatar Airport, um, this bus uh, that came 
to transfer myself and other people in wheelchairs. Um, and um, uh, we got on the bus, and where the three wheelchairs were clamped in the middle of the bus, uh, uh, there was no view out of the windows. Um, other people had higher, higher up seats and could see out the window. So I said to the bus driver, um, you know, you put me in this position here. I said, I've got no view of the city or anything else. And he said, uh, Clarence, before you came, I uh, knew the, uh, the, the setup of the instrument set and people in wheelchairs. And uh, I was told to block up the windows because people outside didn't want to see me. Wow. I know. It's real hard-hitting. Yeah. And the thing is, we went to that country, which was Qatar, um, because actually they wanted to learn and be educated, to be fair, um, because they had the World Cup coming up. And yeah. they wanted, they knew there was lots of things to learn. Mm -hmm. And although, you know, we do find that hard-hitting, many, many years ago, it was quite tough here yeah. in England, not that I was around then, mm -hmm. but um, people weren't seen on the streets. It's, it's, this is a gradual thing, yeah. uh, joy of us banging on doors and, yeah. and educating people. Yeah, mm. it seems like a continuous battle, isn't it? Definitely. But as you say, there is some progression happening, mm. but... Mm. I'm still of the mindset of like still, we still need more. It's not it's not good enough. No, it's no, really no. Not. And we need to, um, um, you know, it's good when governments and legislations come on board about how buildings should be built. Yeah. What was very fortunate for where I live up in Newcastle and Gateshead um, is they were building a building just after my accident, and the chief executive of the uh, Royal Northern Symphonia because uh, I used to play trumpet with them, mm -hmm. he said to me, um, I want you every now and again, Clarence, to go into these architects' meetings and speak up any time there's an area that you're not happy with because after they built this building, I don't want you coming up to me and saying, I can't get into that hall. I can't get into that corner. Mm -hmm. And so it was fantastic for me to have the privilege because even these architects, which weren't, that uh, old, really, in age, was saying, oh, there's just two steps up to the bar. And I would say, hold on a minute. <laughs> just Did you two? say two Great. steps? I said, that's no good. <laughs> you know, and so you had to point out all, all the very important things. Mm. And then we realised um, uh, the wisdom of Gateshead was that there were other um, uh, special needs that people had. So we had a little group of about five or six. And we all used to show our corner, and it's made a big difference. I think when you speak to people that have needs, they are the better ones to identify and explain and describe what they need. It, make, it makes sense, but it's. do you ever feel like it's... Do you ever feel like it's a bit tiring or like taxing on you to like have to keep thinking about yes. access all so, the time? Yes, it, it can be. And you can't believe the mistakes that people make. Mm. You know, they book, um, you know, um, uh, discussions in uh, offices where yeah. you, there's no lift. Mm. And so some of us can't go there. Yeah. And I had to speak um, around the county about um, accessible toilets. And two venues that I spoke at, the toilets, the disabled toilets were out of order. And they're saying to me, oh, well, the nearest toilet you can go to is a quarter of a mile down the street. How, that's not acceptable. Yeah. How many people 
would lo- ever leave their house if they had to go a quarter of a mile down the street to go to the toilet. And so these are really basic essentials, and you can't believe that these things happen. Or, or So, um, yeah. So, I, Clarence, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about... Um, I was reading on your website, and it's and you mentioned it earlier as well that you went to church, um, and so obviously you now you like to inspire people. Um, do you feel like your faith has helped you kind of be as determined and resilient as you have been? And kind of like I love the way you just like you had your accident, and then like two years later you was like, well, I'm st- I still want to play music. A lot of people wouldn't do that. And, um, like, you know, people feel defeated. So do you feel like your faith played a big part in that? My faith did play a big part in in it. Um, It it came afterwards. I mean, you know, being... Travelling around the world and having a great time and then in one minute being catapulted into the disabled world and I ended up in a hospital where um, people... Uh, would shout at me as if I was silly. Mm-hmm. People would uh, tell me to do things as if I couldn't think or hear or, you know, and that's the most amazing thing. I thought, well, hold on, I've broken a bone in my neck. Why Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. So it was a case of getting around that. But there was a couple of times in um, intensive care when um, I stopped breathing and um, I, I, yeah, I still had this... Christian faith, which I have to do, and I stopped breathing. And I came round and and um, I said, I was looking up to the ceiling as um, uh, as I came round, and uh, and I said to God, I think He must have brought me back for a purpose because there seems to be a couple of um, times when uh, you know I, I maybe should have died, possibly died, um, and I heard a clear voice, um, and it said to me um, that. Um, but God had brought me back for a purpose. There were things that he wanted me to do and speak about, and um, and that my life was going to be more fulfilled than it was before. Mm-hmm. And I remember half smiling up to God and saying, well, I don't know how up-to-date you are, but at the moment I can't move a muscle. And it was amazing, really, because I was, you know, uh, a very low physical ebb, how things slowly came back together. I mean, I was on a ventilator and told that um, I wouldn't be able to uh, survive without a ventilator. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of these things, I wouldn't have a voice. Um, I'd have to have a computerized voice. And so from that moment, I felt this very strange peace all over my body. And that was bizarre because I had no feeling Mm -hmm. of anything. And I felt this very strange peace. And from that moment... um, that's put a bit of a smile on my face that I knew I wasn't going to be alone. And um, and I do smile back often at that conversation I had and see the pathway and opportunities yeah. that I've had to speak to many, 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 many people. I don't, I don't ram uh, my faith 
uh, in front of them. Yeah. But I talk, and then sometimes I get pushed and pushed and pushed. I was in Cumbria talking to some students that invited me over, and they said, "But why are you? Why are you this? And why are you that? And you know, there must be a reason." And then I said, "Well, do you remember I mentioned I had a faith? I still have a faith." So. The thing is, is that people have different things that they need. There were other happy people in the ward, yeah. and they were getting through in many different ways. But that's been very important for me. Yeah, no, it's it seems like it, and and the thing is, I think whatever helps anybody get by yes. is important. And if that's a faith, that's you know that's. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. Clarence, what would you say to anybody listening or watching this podcast? who has a disability or knows someone who has a disability that wants to be a musician, but maybe they've got a few barriers and they're not quite sure how to go about it. What would you say to kind of encourage them um, to get involved in music? Um, a lot of people would tell you, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. On many, many, many things. And um, and and I, I found, you know, I need to break it down. Are there other people out there that are doing things in music? You know, and then looking at their lives. So if somebody says you can't do that and somebody's doing it, you have to look, investigate. And so um, I came up and there wasn't many examples for me to look at. And so somebody said to me, oh, you can't ever fly again, Clarence. And I said, well, medically, what's, what's wrong? So I did ask questions. I wasn't trying to be arrogant and do everything the opposite way to what I was told. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, investigate what is the problem. You know, if I have a physical disability, is there anybody out there making music with physical disability? Look and read up on their lives, maybe. Um, but, but test the waters yourself. Yeah. You know, test the waters. Push people and find out and be satisfied yourself why this isn't possible. I've amazed myself with what I've done, and I've seen many young people with lots of disabilities that have been told they cannot do anything. Mm -hmm. And and what that's done for those young people is quite amazing. They've I remember there was one young lady um, in a middle school, and she was very, very shy all through the school time. And I picked her up one day and I said, I forget her name, you know, Jessica, would you like to conduct our little group today? And of course, she sort of didn't say much. And I said, today, you're in charge. And we are not going to start any music till you you give us this beat. Remember that beat that we talked about? And I said, you want to do that? And even me, I'm part of your band. I'm not allowed to play a note till you point to me to play. And anyway, after that one hour of her doing that, she skipped down the corridor, back home, uh, back to the classroom. They said they've not stopped her talking and she's got so much positive energy that she could do something. And we did a little concert and uh, she was conducted in one of those and her parents and the family have so much respect for her mm -hmm. now as a person. It's changed all that relationship and so for her, more things are possible. Yeah. I have um, one last question for you. Mm -hmm. As as a musician, what would you like to see change in the industry? Yeah, I, I, as a musician, I would love to see uh, equality uh, uh, everywhere. 
And it's so rewarding now in these days where we, we have the technology to listen to music in different countries and a mixed mash of things. Um, and so there should be no barriers for anybody. Does anybody have the right to say, no, you can't have access to music or you can't have access to these wonderful things? And so um, I just want to see an open equality with, with um, uh, all, all, all people, all music, all different genres, um, and like a, a free world. And I think we're slowly moving towards that, um, but uh, not quick enough. 100%, I agree. I think, yeah, we are all entitled to have access to music, and I think I think you're, you're paving the way, really. You're, you're showing us that we can do whatever we put our minds to. Dr. Clarence, thank you so much no, for joining thank me you today. So much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you for inviting me. No thank problem. You. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unseen Unheard. If you would like more information on the report, please go to the Attitude is Everything's website or the Black Lives and Music's website where you can read the whole report and find out more.